in the meantime, if you would grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1. We continue to make our way through the book of Ephesians. We have titled these lessons, Basic Christianity, what are the core elements that make up the Christian faith, as well as the vital practices that make up the Christian life. And we come to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It's part of a larger context here that is dealing with family dynamics. We saw the last couple of weeks how living a wise life, which is how this section kicked off back in verse 15 of chapter 5. Walking in wisdom, which also manifests in the Spirit-filled life. How the Spirit-filled life just is the normal Christian life. How this manifests in the home. In the last couple of weeks, we talked about husbands and wives. This week, we see how this impacts parents and children. Ephesians 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let us pray. This is your word, Father. It is true. Whether we believe it or not, it is true. It always has been and always will be. And we pray that by your spirit, you would enable us to yield ourselves to your word. So that we would be the people that you desire for us to be. That we would seek to glorify you in all things, especially as it pertains to to the home and to the family. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. The integrity of a society begins with the integrity of the home. And the home is the first and best place for children to learn faith and obedience. And by the way, this isn't just true because it comes from the revelation of God. It's most true because of that, of course. But even unbelievers have recognized the importance of the family as it pertains to the nation. Mary Eberstad has published a book entitled How the West Really Lost God. And in her book, she describes how the family and faith are the invisible double helix of society. And of course, the double helix, DNA, right? Family and faith, the invisible double helix of society, two spirals that when linked to one another can effectively reproduce, but whose strength and momentum depend on one another. She, in this book, demonstrates that a lot of the time people think that 
because of the loss of faith, that has led to a degradation of the family. Eberstadt challenges that by saying it's tough to actually make a determination as to which is the chicken and which is the egg. That, in fact, uh, she notes, sociologically, married people with children are more likely to go to church and be religious than single people. But why is this? Does faith drive family or does family drive faith? She also points to a link between faith and fertility. Those who are religious tend to have more children than those who are not. And in the book, she argues that instead of this being a one-way street where faith uh, is driving the family, at least some of the time, family drives faith, and sometimes that helps to make sense of some of the facts. That when there is a degradation of the family, there is often a degradation of faith. And when there is a degradation of faith, there is often a degradation of the family. That these things go together. And here is Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, and he is speaking into the Christian community to say, look, there is an original design to the family. God has ordained this institution from the beginning. What would happen over the centuries is that eventually the Roman society would collapse. And the collapse of that nation, and really any nation, is directly related to the home as well as what that society does with the Christian faith. Not just faith, generally speaking, and not just spirituality, but the Christian faith. The only remedy is a wholesale return to the godly principles that are contained in the Bible. And parents must first give themselves over to the way of God, and then in turn, they instruct their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So Paul begins here in verse 1. And, and we've already seen, and we will continue to see, that Paul addresses first the ones who are dependent upon another. Back in verse 22, wives are addressed first, and then the husbands. Here, children are addressed first, and then the fathers. And then in verse 5, it will be slaves, and then the masters are addressed in verse 9. This is the typical style, and probably would have been surprising. In both the Jewish world and the Roman world, it was the husbands, the fathers, the masters, who had the front stage. And so for Paul to kind of turn the tables here and address the dependent first, followed by those who they are dependent upon, following that, would have perhaps been surprising, to say the least. But he does that here, and he addresses children. In verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, we must keep in mind the larger context of the book of Ephesians. Back in chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul is writing to the saints in Ephesus. 
And so these children, probably not exactly preschoolers and toddlers, although I'm sure the church had some of those running around, but rather that there is the recognition that while obedience and honor certainly begin in childhood, it continues on even into adulthood. And so these children would have been not just the, the very young ones, but also what we would consider preteen, teen, probably early 20s, all the way on up. That children have an obligation to their parents. And here, verse 1, it is to obey your parents in the Lord. This word obey is actually stronger than the word submit. We've seen already, going back to chapter 5 and verse 21, about how we as a society, we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is the nature of the church. And yet, now Paul begins to unpack, okay, but how does this impact the husband-wife relationship? And now, how does this impact the children-parent relationship? And as I said a couple of weeks ago, and also in a Monday night broadcast, it is rare to hear an egalitarian who, is, who argues for radical equality among men and women to come to this text and say, actually, ch- parents need to submit to their children. No one ever makes that case, which is surprising. Because if you're going to be consistent in demanding radical mutual submission across the board, it just seems that you would also have to make the case that parents need to submit to their children. Nobody does that. You know why? Because it's nonsensical. Which shows the inconsistency in the position, by the way. But children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. In the Lord, this is a key phrase, of course, in Ephesians. Paul has, he opened up the letter with in Christ, in Christ, in him, in him. And now here it is, in the Lord. It means to obey as part of one's relation to the Lord. Because of your relationship to the Lord, you are going to render obedience to your parents. Scripture, by the way, paints a very bleak picture of children who are disobedient to their parents. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 15 and verse 5, Proverbs 15, 5 says, A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. A little later on, in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 11, it talks about how there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Verse 17 provides the consequence of that. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. That's pretty graphic. Need I remind us of what happened in the book of Exodus when there was a person who was being disobedient to the law. What was uh, the, uh, when, when he was breaking the Sabbath, what was the consequence of that? What was the consequence of a, a child who was disobedient and did not honor their parents? It was very swift in its uh, execution, shall we say. Disobedience to parents in the book of Romans. Chapter 1, 
is listed as a characteristic of those who are depraved and reprobate and those who are given over by God to a debased mind. This is chapter 1 of Romans, verses 29 and 30. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. These are the ones, again, verse 28, that are given over by God to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Disobedience to parents is also a signal that we are living in the last days. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that this is the case. Verse 1, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. It should be seen very quickly that disobedience to parents is behavior of unregenerate people, of those who refuse to bow the knee to the Lord, to King Jesus. Such things ought not to be so within the Christian community. Disobedience, just generally speaking, of course, is spiritual rebellion, and disobedience to parents similarly has spiritual consequences. On Monday nights, I'm, uh, of course, doing uh, the, the live stream. And one of the things we're talking about now is we're contrasting between uh, the, the faith that we hold as members of the Church of Christ. We, we're contrasting that with what uh, you'll find within, say, the Catholic Church. And we believe that this is the sole infallible rule for faith and doctrine. But we need to be careful in making distinctions and categories. Because we, while we recognize that this is the sole infallible rule of faith and doctrine, we, also, we do recognize that there are other authorities for example, within the church, we have elders who exercise authority within the church, authority that they wield in recognition of the good shepherd. And in the home, we recognize that there's authority there as well, that parents have authority over their children. So when children are disobedient to their parents, that is a rejection of authority that God has set up. Again, these are the spiritual concepts. So, again, in the larger scope of things, it's not that we throw out all authority. We recognize that these other authorities are lesser and, by the way, are fallible. I, I don't think our elders would be upset if I said they are fallible men. Because that's the truth. Just as I'm a fallible man as well. Why we must always and uh, constantly come back to the only infallible rule for faith and doctrine with the Scripture. Parents are to do the same thing with their children. You know, Paul, what we're going to see here in verse 4, is going to exhort these fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. 
Again, that shows our own fallibility because at least implied in that command is some fathers exhort their children to anger. That's the fallibility that exists within the fathers. Mom's got it too, okay? But why we must constantly come back to the scriptures to shape and inform our practice. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's right. It is fitting to do this. Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, is pointing to the fact that you could talk about common sense. I mean, just just from a common sense perspective, although I guess common sense is increasingly more uncommon these days, but just from the created order of things, that it, it just seems right for the children to render to their parents obedience. However, that's not the way Paul argues. He doesn't appeal to the nature of things. What he's going to do is he's going to point right back to the law. And specifically, the fifth commandment. That God has sanctioned and sanctified obedience among children to their parents. And so verse 2 is that fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Let's pause right there for just a moment because Paul just, Paul just did a, a marvelous thing for us, providing incredible clarity, which is vitally needed today. Parents. Verse 1, how, how does Paul define a parent? How, how does Paul define the term parents here? Father and mother. That excludes every other permutation that people would suggest today. It would exclude, say, Heather having two mommies, or Johnny having two daddies, or Jimmy having two daddies, three mommies. It is a father and a mother. This, by the way, just flows out of the context because he's just talked about husbands and wives. That what God has ordained from the beginning is a biological man and a biological woman. And again, for clarity's sake, um, it's not that um, little Eleanor has a single parent who is mistaken as she goes from one gender to another gender. All of these, all of these are by definition, a distortion of the original good creation of God. Now, at the same time, someone may say, but, but I'm a single parent. I, I, I recognize the, the goodness of uh, the created order. I don't have any of those desires. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a single parent trying to raise my children. And I hear you. And I think... You can, you can address me afterward and correct me if I'm mistaken here, but I believe that you would recognize that's not exactly ideal for your children. The ideal is here, father and a mother. Now, I rec again, because of the fall, because of sin, because we live in a broken world, that's what happens sometimes. But if, if you're a mother who is raising your children... You're probably looking for 
godly men in the congregation, especially if you have sons who are going to come alongside you and, and help you raise your children in the Lord. Or if you're a single husband and you've got children that you're trying to, uh, a, a single man that you're trying to raise up your children, especially if you have daughters, you're probably looking for godly women in the church that are going to help mentor your daughters in the faith. And that's because, again, by design, children need both a father and a mother. Honor here has to do with respect. It has to do with uh, reverence. It has to do with valuing the, 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 the parents rendering them the, the proper reverence that is due them. The thing is, honor honor is always the case. Whether you're 5 or 50, you honor your parents. Obedience may look a little different. I, if you are a 5-year-old, obedience maybe looks like eat your vegetables. If you are a... 20-year-old who you just haven't lived long enough or you're, you're, you're thinking about uh, engaging in behavior that you ought not to, for 20-year-old, obedience may look like you, know, you ought to keep yourself for marriage. Which, by the way, uh, and I guess I just assumed a lot of things as we went through the text, but uh, when it comes to marriage um, God he's ordained a man and a woman within the bonds of marriage that's where uh, certain privileges and prerogatives are to be expressed and only there that uh, the privilege of sexual intimacy is reserved for the marriage bed and, and the, the privilege of procreation, likewise reserved for the marriage relationship. Glad we get to do all this cleanup stuff as we go along here. Um, honor, honor, honoring, honoring your parents. Again, the, the theological principle here is God has so, in his good providence, has so ordained things that you have the parents that you have. And that we have the children that we have. It's not an accident, just like a cosmic roll of the dice. God, and Scripture confirms this throughout. Go back and read Paul in Acts chapter 17 when he's on Mars Hill. And he affirms there, you live in the time and place in which you live because God put you there and, and you have the best opportunity to seek him out and find him. He's not far from each one of us. And the circumstances that we find ourselves in are also not by accident, not by chance, but it's God who has ordained these things. And so we have the parents that we have, we have the children that we have, because this is who uh, God has determined to put. And, and so when it comes to authority, God, again, has established the parents to be authority in the home for the children, and as children come up and as they learn, they begin to recognize 
the, the nature of that authority and how honoring their parents is merely a reflection of how they ought to honor God. And indeed, honoring God, that again, that's, that's the undergirding principle for honor your father and your mother. Paul says, verse 2, this is the first commandment with a promise, and the promise is contained there in verse 3, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The promise here is that things go better for you if you obey your parents. And that's true, by the way, generally. That things will go better for you if you obey the word and will of God. That things tend to go worse when you rebel against God and you reject his word and you reject his law. That things become harder for you in life. But if you are obedient to God, and specifically here honoring your father and mother, you will be more useful to a society. You will tend to be more healthy, more happy. Things are going to go well with you, and also you may live long in the land. And originally, in the Ten Commandments, in Ephesians chapter 20, excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, the land there, of course, was the promised land. And um, I, I've, I've done a video on this during the Monday night broadcast, especially when the stuff that was happening with Israel was getting real big. And I talked about, and you'll have to go track that down uh, if you're interested in the longer discussion, but the short discussion is the land promise that was given to Abraham has been, just like all the other promises given to Abraham, have, has been fulfilled in Christ. And it isn't that Christ is just inheriting this sliver of land over in the Near East, but that he is inheriting the nations. He's inheriting the world. And so that, it, that you may live long in the land here, applied as it is to the Christian, that, uh, again, as Christ is inheriting the earth, what is in view here is our living long on this earth. That those who tend to listen to their parents, doing what they say, will, generally speaking, tend to live longer than others. And, of course, that's the problem with the promise, isn't it? This is what, say, maybe your skeptical friends, or maybe what you're just asking right now in, in your own thinking about this is, well, wait a minute, there are some children. And they even may be very obedient in their short lives. There are some children that, that die. They don't live long. I was reminded of um, Andrew Murray, uh, one of the great theologians who uh, has written extensively on, on prayer and discipleship and things like that. But he had several children. He and his wife had, had several children. And many of them died. He outlived most of them. That's the way things went back in the day when Murray was alive, without all the conveniences of modern medicine and things like that. And there's, a, there's one of the accounts uh, about one of his children. He had a daughter who, from a very young age, showed a remarkable interest in the Christian faith and in God and things like that. And there's one very touching conversation that Murray records that he has with this uh, young daughter of his. And, and, and already, I mean, she's, she's sitting there like, 
I, I'm a sinner and I, I need Jesus and, and all these things. Murray has this very, very touching but very deep spiritual conversation with just his, his young daughter. And she contracts an illness, a disease, and ultimately succumbs to that, again, at a very young age. Some kids' lives are short without that very overt, willful rebellion. They don't live long on the earth, even though they may have been very obedient. So what then? What do we do with this promise that, it may, that you may live long in the land? And then, of course, the, the problem is further compounded when... Even we consider that some, you know, young little whippersnapper who is uh, exceedingly uh, disobedient to his parents, he grows up and he lives this profligate lifestyle and he lives to a great old age, right? Why do the wicked prosper, Lord? That's always been one of the questions that comes up in wisdom literature in the Psalms. So what do we do? What do we do? It is true we can point to specific cases where it seems like this promise fails. However, this promise, when it is applied generally, and I believe that's the way it's supposed to be understood, it tends towards the results that are specified. Where you find parental obedience, you will typically, generally speaking, find longevity and habits that promote that. One more thing, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention, God is sovereign. And he is sovereign over life and death. He is the one who kills and makes alive. This is a principle that's all throughout our Bible. And he owes no explanation to us for the whys and the wherefores of life and death. And though we may only get partial answers in this life, the promise still stands. Verse 4, fathers. Notice that fathers here, Paul moves from the general term of parents, again fathers and mothers, to the specific term of fathers here. And there are those who will argue, well, fathers here is supposed to be understood as both parents. And it's true that sometimes the term can be used that way. Here, contextually, it seems that Paul specifically puts the onus upon fathers. We've already seen husbands are to take primary responsibility uh, when it comes to the marriage relationship. But also, here we see that, once again, the shift is intentional. Fathers have primary responsibility to lead the home and primary accountability under the Lord for the home uh, and for the children as well. That just as Adam was to lead his wife with the word of God, so also he was to lead his family, any children that resulted from that marriage with the word of God. And here, husbands likewise are to lead their families with the word of God. But here we have this exhortation. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. You couple this with the uh, parallel text over in Colossians 3. And verse 21, you get a, a, a bit more of the picture painted for us. Colossians 3, 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. 
And so father, Paul is telling these fathers, these Christian fathers, not to frustrate their children unto discouragement. Not to lead their children down this path of frustration which could culminate in their being discouraged in the faith. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's the negative. That's the positive. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's interesting that the, the term that is used here for discipline, your translation may say nurture in admonition of the Lord, nurture there. It's actually the same term that was used back in 5 and verse 29 where Paul there says, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. Nourish. Same root term now is being picked up here for what the father does with the children. That he is to provide certainly for physical needs, certainly for psychological needs, emotional needs, but also, of course, most importantly, spiritual needs. Fathers are to give their children what they need spiritually. Again, primary responsibility, not sole responsibility. Mom's there too. She's following his lead and helping him carry that through according to the gifts that she has. And so, uh, fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction. Instruction here, there's teaching involved. And this teaching is of the Lord. It comes from Christ. It comes from His Word. Dad, are you in the Word? Dad, are you eating this book? See, I thought this kind of sermon was supposed to be on Father's Day when I'm not here, right? Father's Day came early. Here we go. First, the wives, then the husbands. First, the children, then the fathers. We'll see next week, first the slave, then the master. The dependent first, then followed by those upon whom they are dependent. Here, Paul states the negative, followed by the positive. Don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Although there is a proper and necessary place for discipline. As one writer has pointed out, that discipline must nevertheless never be arbitrary or unkind. Otherwise, the children will become discouraged. And conversely, almost nothing causes a child's personality to blossom and gifts to develop like the positive encouragement of loving and understanding parents. And then also bring them up in... God's instruction, the Lord's instruction. How are fathers to do this unless they know what the Word of God teaches? How are they to teach with wisdom unless they have themselves learned in Christ's school? And it is true that, again, as, we, as I mentioned earlier, the fathers are fallible. There are times when they will fail. But with that failure, hopefully comes repentance and confession. And yes, even seeking forgiveness with a devotion to do better in the future. And so, fathers and mothers, yes, 
Study the Word of God. Seek to live by it. Put it into practice. Apply it to your everyday life. Seek to model it so that your children can see it in your life as well. Let's commit this to prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a perfect father. I pray for all of the parents that are within the sound of my voice. I pray that you would give them exactly what they need. That they would have a a hunger for your word. And that also by the spirit, they would seek to live it out each and every day. Father, when we fail, forgive us, cleanse us by the blood of Christ. Help us to make things right so that we can do that which is right. Bless us, Father, we need your help in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And that is the good news. We have a a good and perfect Father in heaven. The Father sent His perfect Son into the world to do what we could never do, and that is live a perfect, sinless life on our behalf. And then also take upon Himself the death that was due us, the penalty and punishment for our sins, which is, of course, the cross. Jesus, God's unique Son, was crucified in our place for our sins. The wrath of God for our sins is fully exhausted in Christ on the cross. Christ dies on the cross. He's buried. Three days later, His tomb is found open, empty. His grave clothes are lying there. He appears to many people. And after 40 days, he ascends back to the Father's right hand where he lives and rules forevermore and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Christ is Lord. My friend, won't you make that good confession? Won't you confess that Christ is Lord of your life? That you will turn away from sin, turn away from doing things your way, and turn to Christ and acknowledge him as Lord of your life boss of your life. That you will do things according to His Word and according to His will. And of course this leads us of course to the baptistry. Where you are baptized, immersed in water, all your sins, washed away by the blood of Jesus, receiving the Holy Spirit, raised to live this new life with God, with Christ, with His Holy Spirit. We can help you with that today, this morning, if you so desire. In a moment, Gary's going to lead us in a song that's designed to encourage you to come forward and express your desire to become a Christian and to follow Jesus in all things. Many of us, most of us, we've done that. And as you consider the things that uh, we've talked about this morning, maybe it is specifically related to your parenting or to your honor uh, or lack thereof that you are rendering to your parents, realize that you've come up short in some area again you know this song is designed to encourage you as well come forward and uh, 
Confess these things before the throne of grace. He'll surround you with love and lift you up to our Father who delights in helping his children. Maybe it's not specifically related to what we've been talking about, but just something that's weighing upon your heart and your mind. The invitation is for you as well. Come forward and share these things and seek the help that comes from God. Seek the help that comes from your brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll surround you with love and lift you up in prayer about that. Maybe you need a personal setting to share something that's in private. One of our shepherds can meet you in the conference room, make your way to the conference room. They'll meet you there. We'll do the same thing there that we do here. Surround you with love, lift you up in prayer, our Father in heaven. Maybe it's something unrelated to what we've been talking about, something uh, physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, what have you. You want the congregation to know about it. You want the prayers of your brothers and sisters on your behalf. Well, the lesson is yours. The invitation is open. Won't you come right now while we stand as we sing?